0: G'day humans. Of all the conversations we have, which is more difficult than the conversation around death? Not just other people's death, that's hard enough. What about your own death? Have you talked to people about it? About how you'd like to die? I mean, even the very idea of having some say in how you die is both a luxury and perhaps a little bit of a perversion of the way of nature. I mean, if you're a religious person, you probably don't think these are things that people should be dabbling in at all. And yet increasingly, as we're able to, as we're living longer and longer, as we're coming up with medical solutions that improve our longevity, but not necessarily our mental capacity, if you found yourself in a situation where life was no longer worth living, either because you were riddled with dementia or some degenerative disease, would you want to have some control over that? Would it even be legal to have some control over that? These are subjects we shy away from, because it always seems weird to bring them up. But in reality, that only makes them more pressing. Choosing how to live a flourishing life, and how to end it on your terms, is a conversation that may seem far off, but it's no less important. And it's no less uncomfortable. On the program today, an amazing conversation with an amazing man, one of Australia's most famous and most respected creative minds. He's had an incredible career in television and radio. He's been a top-rating FM breakfast radio presenter. He's a producer, a writer, former TV host. He created well-known television shows like Gruen. And Hungry Beast. Uh, He hosted his own long running interview show on the ABC called Enough Rope. And funnily enough, he now spends much of his time as an advocate for voluntary assisted dying laws or euthanasia. He has a podcast about that, which is called Better Off Dead. He has an organization devoted to it called Go Gentle. And that's the pretext for this conversation. We don't stick only to that subject. In fact, we get to that a little later on because there's so much to talk to him about, about the culture wars, about the way that we are, we are stifling creativity at the moment, about cancel culture, about all the things that he hasn't had an opportunity to chime in on because he hasn't had a show lately. But I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with the one and only titan of Australian media, Andrew Denton. To do when you were a kid, what were your aspirations?
1: I think I wanted to be halfback for South Sydney Rugby League football team.
0: Right. I'm pretty
1: sure that's what I wanted to be. I had a. I've st- the, the longest lived piece of clothing I have is a pair of South Sydney socks I was given when I was about nine, which came up to my forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would spend most afternoons or whenever I could out in the backyard in the Blue Mountains. Uh, having a one-man game of rugby league. I'd kick and I'd tackle <laughs> myself, and um, that's what I wanted to be. And it was tragic because uh, I couldn't tackle, which mm. actually would have made me eligible for South for many of those years. Yeah, games. you did. Yes, that's
0: right. Well, of all the sports that you don't want to do solo, I'd mm. say rugby league is probably number one.
1: Yeah. Uh, boxing's another one. Boxing's another one, <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah. although you do tend to win those bouts, that, yes. that,
0: That's true. It's very successful. And so at what point did you realise that that wasn't going to happen, that you weren't going to be a – or are you still holding out hope?
1: Oh, yeah. Look, I uh, I know the uh, I, I know the club. I do occasionally put myself forward. <laughs> uh, no, look, I knew simultaneously that wasn't going to happen, although the, it became concrete to me when I went to uh, college out at Bathurst. And I was a very good touch footballer. I had a really good sidestep, pretty good pass. And the, I was approached to try out for the rugby league team. And I thought, mm, I don't know, because I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm not a physical guy. But anyway, I had a go. And uh, when the game was over, the prop forward for the team came up to me and and said, sympathetically, empathetically, that was the bravest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And I thought, no, I'm not cut out for this.
0: Like that's a very kind thing for you to say. And it tells me more than I need to know about my prospects in this game. And did you have uh, heroes who were in entertainment or the media or who were comics or interviewers or anything? Where did that come from?
1: Oh, look, I had, you know, uh, yeah, plenty of heroes. Certainly in an Australian sense, the moment where Australian television took off for me was Norman Gunston. Um, that was the first thing that really spoke to me that was made locally. Mm. Uh, it was just so... Explain
0: to non-Australians who Norman Gunston was.
1: To non-Australians, Norman Gunston was... Or people
0: under the age of 30, I suppose.
1: He was the grandfather of um, Ali G and all of those kind of joke uh, figures, but... Australian television, as I saw it growing up, was pretty cringeworthy. It was, you know, low talent, high ego, um, the same people talking to the same people, talking to the same people on the same shows. I'm not sure that Gary
0: McDonald would say that Norman Gunston wasn't cringeworthy and ego-driven.
1: That's exactly right, but that was the point. He was a complete piss take of that, and his his show was so deliberately low-rent and ridiculous, and he asked extraordinary questions of extraordinary people, Um, you know. Uh, and he had, in those days, he got everybody. You know, he went and spoke to Muhammad Ali and his producer, who I worked with many years later, told me that he he literally, if you look carefully, you can literally see his, the producer's hand, on Gary McDonald's back, sort of pushing him towards <laughs> Muhammad Ali. But, I mean, he, uh, he asked Paul McCartney at a press conference, is it true that you're dead? Um, <laughs> and he, of course, um, had... One of the great moments in Australian uh, broadcasting history, the day that Gough Whitlam was sacked, still the most tumultuous day in the history of Australian politics. Our Prime Minister was sacked by the representative of the Queen, never happened before or since. There was near to a revolution on the steps of Parliament House. Huge crowds had turned up. The Prime Minister Gough Whitlam was standing there declaiming uh, you know, the injustice that had been done. And in the middle of that, was this ridiculous figure, Norman Gunston. And to describe him, he had this kind of blue, almost um, formal jacket with ill-fitting dark pants, uh, the worst comb over slicked back that you've ever seen, and little bits of toilet paper on his face from shaving cuts. Uh, And, in fact, when he interviewed the actress Sally Struthers, and she said, why don't you use an electric shaver? He said, I do. And, uh, And she laughed so much she couldn't continue the interview. Anyway, I digress. So there he was, this ridiculous figure, and uh, <laughs> he actually grabbed the then um, the man who became Australia's prime minister some years later, Bob Hawke, who was a very major figure in Australian politics. And uh, he started to ask him a question. There was this lunatic figure standing there. It was like having um, a clown at the French Revolution. <laughs> and, um, and Bob Hawke interrupted him and said, ah, no, Norman, this is too serious. <laughs> and Norman Gunston just turns to the camera and goes, You're right. This is too serious. And it was this insane (laughs) moment. So he was – that's when the light went on for me. I thought that is such a great – everything he did was such a great critique of the ordinariness of Australian television. He elevated ordinariness to a brilliant piece of entertainment.
0: Mm. Did you want to do that?
1: I didn't want to do what he did because he was doing it so well. But I did like the idea of subversion. That appealed to me a lot. And uh subverting what I saw as um stuff that required subverting, that was self satisfied and tedious and um and predictable.
0: What requires subverting today?
1: Today? Mm, that's a hard question because uh if you want subversion, turn on your phone any time and go to any particular stream of social media that works for you. Uh what requires subverting today? Mm in a in a satirical sense i'm not sure that anything much works anymore you know i look at all those very brilliantly made shows in america I look at someone like samantha b for example or stephen colbert and i think i'm not sure you're um contributing in a way that helps now uh louis banel the artist or Louis Buñuel, as it was explained to me by <laughs> I wasn't going to correct you, no, but obviously. Know. But I'm an Australian, yeah. Louis, Louis, I'm, Louis B. Well, yeah, yeah. His mates were Salvador yeah. D. And that lot. <laughs> Salvi. you know, Lewis. Uh, he said, "An artist's response. An artist cannot hope to change anyone's mind. An artist's responsibility is to remind those in power that not not everyone agrees with them." I think the value of satire, when it's done well, is it it doesn't change. The minds of anyone in power, you know, Peter Cook, when he started the Establishment Club, was famously asked, do you think this will change anything? He said, yes, I'm sure it will, in the same way as Cabaret undid Hitler. Mm. Um, But it does, I think, the value of satire is it shows other people, and particularly people coming through in the generation behind you, critical ways of thinking. Here's a way to deconstruct this problem. And I think that's very valuable.
0: When you talk about the challenges of satire at the moment and cite people like Colbert and Samantha Bee, that makes me wonder if the challenge isn't just that it's harder now to do good satire. Because I I don't know about you, but I've been a little bit disappointed with Colbert, who was a huge hero of mine when he was doing the Colbert Report, Mm -hmm. and was so sharp in his satirical take on... People who deserved it, who were in power in naughties in yes. the sort of in the first decade of this century, and there's something about the preaching to the choir. There's something about the sort of smugness that can come across in on both sides of politics now that strikes me as uninventive or unfresh. Like I watch him, and I sort of I'm talking about during the Trump administration. Obviously, I haven't been watching him since since Biden took over, but there, but. You could always sort of tell where the gag was
1: going. Sure. And that, and that's, you know, America is poisonously divided. Uh, I fear to a point of eventual civil war. I, I genuinely think that is the way that country is heading. Um, and unfortunately, I don't like the word smug, but unfortunately I think um, those satirical shows, which are almost always at the left, and there is a reason for that, um, uh, they're just part of one side of that poisonous divide. What I used to love about John Stewart, which is where Stephen Colbert um, first appeared, and John Stewart is a genuine hero of mine, someone I deeply admire, Mm. is that he used to find a way to speak to both sides of the aisle with equal curiosity, fairness, and uh, ability to take the piss. Mm. And that took an enormous um, discipline. And he stepped aside eventually when he realised that Um, the the endless machine of what he viewed as Fox propaganda was actually pushing him too far to the left. And I thought that showed great intelligence too to go, I can no longer do this. Not only could he no longer do it emotionally, but I think he realised that he could no longer do it effectively.
0: Mm. Do you remember, he was also just smart. I mean, so, not that Colbert isn't, Colbert's a genius, but I think Colbert is allowing himself to be guided by the intellectual level of the mainstream American audience, whereas it felt like, like stewart and colbert both didn't really give a rat's ass who got the joke and who didn't <laughs> they were sure. pitching as high as they wanted to pitch sure uh there was uh, there's a you're just reminding me i don't know why it popped into my head of a moment when megan kelly was on fox news mm-hmm. and there was and someone on her panel at yeah, this was i think she had a 10 p.m show so it was at 10:30 at night su- suggested that they were talking about Santa Claus was being portrayed as an African American in some, you know, inner city school, and everyone was outraged right. by it. And John Stewart and she turned to the camera and she said, "Kids, Santa Claus is white." And it cut back to John Stewart, and he said, "Who is old enough to be watching TV at ten thirty at night? Conservative enough to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to to be watching Fox News?" Young enough to still believe in Santa Claus and racist enough to care that (laughs) he's white. That's a beautiful analysis. (laughs) I'm probably mangling it, but, you know, I was just like, hats off to you. Can I share one of my favourite
1: John Stewart moments? I was in, I happened to be in New York when uh, Obama won the second election, which Mm. is, I love US elections. I I always have believed they should be put on ice and toured. They are so amazing. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, it was obviously a catastrophe for the republicans who'd lost and he played a bit of carl rove who was you know one of the nabobs of the, the republican party from the night before where uh, in an eerie echo of the election that's just happened um the it must have been fox uh, called ohio for the democrats and carl was sitting on the panel going well i don't think that's right what what's the you know, what are you basing that on? I don't think that's right. So they did they, – they then cut to their number crunches in the back rooms and they said, well, explain Ohio to us. And the guy said, well, you know, we look at this county and this county and this county and and, and really, you know, when you – and you look at the history of it and you look at the numbers and you know what the booths still are, um, there's a 95% chance that Obama's going to win this. And uh, it cuts back to John Stewart just looking at the camera going, so you're saying there's still a chance? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so good. Yes. Um okay, so let's just continue on with your life trajectory and then we'll get to the present to the present day. Wh- how did you think you were you were going to be most useful achieving that uh that as they say if you, we were talking you were talking about your perfect pronunciation of names épaté le bourgeoisie uh <laughs> to- <laughs> to puncture the uh, the pretensions of the uh, of the middle class if that's what you were trying to do.
1: I didn't think I was going to be anything. I didn't have a plan. I uh, What I got was an opportunity and I got an opportunity with the right people in the right place, in the right frame of mind and that was basically um, I lucked my way into theatre sports and out of theatre sports they made a, uh, a misbegotten TV series in which you'll see myself and Sean McAuliffe and Glenn Robbins making our... Uh, Concurrent debuts, and Sean was the standout of that whole thing for mine. And uh, through that, I got offered uh, a chance to audition for a a new late night um, weird show aimed at younger people, which end up ended up being blah blah blah. And I happened to be working with a producer called Mark Fitzgerald, who created Rage, and a director called Martin Coombs, who was essentially a Warner Brothers cartoon that walks the earth, and um, and a uh, series. Or a researcher called Andy Neal, who uh, is one of the unsung heroes of public broadcasting, deeply committed to what the public broadcaster is there for, and I happened to be in my late twenties, filled with a an attitude about what what I was describing before, what I thought Australian television was, and completely fearless, and working with people who said, well, let's try everything. So. It was just opportunity, and, and the very first show we made, which was each show was about something, was about um, AIDS and safe sex, because that was a big issue. This was 1988, a big issue. Uh, people were dying of it, and the very first show um, we had on this extraordinary doctor who himself uh, passed away of AIDS called Peter Steiner from the Cross we got the audience to demonstrate how to put uh, condoms on by putting them on vegetables. Uh, we had uh, Deb Conway and Dolan Bray from Do Re Mi. We had Our whole thing was to have very frank conversations. We weren't going to you know, use euphemisms. To our delight, it was complained about in federal parliament <laughs> the next day. And uh, the show, I don't think, ever rated more than four. Uh, you know, It was in asterisk territory. But we all felt, and I certainly felt very strongly, this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the size of the pond. What matters is where the ripples go. And uh, so we were doing what I felt was a valuable thing to do, which was show another way of thinking and another way of, of addressing what was going on. And
0: there's a point when you're in, you're starting out your career in media and don't particularly know exactly what you're doing uh, in terms of what box to check. That you sort of have to fill in the form on the airline immigration card on the plane that says, "What do you do for a living?" And you scratch your head a little bit and go, "Well, what do I do? I write." Oh, there? I
1: know, I know exactly. You know what I what write? What did you write? I write personality. <laughs> Every now and then I'll get a look from someone like what <laughs> what but
0: that yeah that's good personality's good
1: I love it because I love the thought that it's audacious it's, that's, well let somebody is professionally a personality yes. like everybody else is amateurs at it uh mm. you know you're a citizen Mm-hmm. I know you have a personality, but you don't really know how to do it. I'm a professional.
0: <laughs> I remember when I was entering the States once and I had a an O-1 visa, which is an extraordinary talent visa, oh. which is, it sounds Ooh, really professional. Him. but it, <laughs> I bet you drop this into every interview. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that they would tattoo it across your forehead when you get it yes. so that you, you, everyone knows who they're talking to. But it's, it's basically just the visa that uh, sports people and scientists and entertainers get when they need to pop into the States and do some. It's the visa Russell Crowe would go to do a movie. Sure, you know. yeah. Uh, and I was working in New York for a while, and uh, it was usually pretty casual and pro forma going through immigration because it's a it's a rare visa, so it's it's one that they just stamp and wave you through. But one guy looks at it and he sees O one, and he looks at me. This is the immigration guy at the at the desk as I'm landing, and he goes, "Extraordinary talent, huh?" He goes, "What do you juggle?"
1: <laughs> that is so good. Perfect
0: way to cut me down to something. That science. is a so good one. So, yeah, personality is good. So, sometimes I just write media, mm-hmm. which is sufficiently vague that it's neither a profession nor a person, yeah.
1: nor even a job. Yeah, and increasingly thing. all those things are true. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah,
0: that's right. And so, when you were writing personality, w- did you have any sense of the trajectory or arc that you wanted your career to take?
1: No idea. Right. Uh, the only time uh, I began to. I guess take control of that arc was um, I did a show at Channel 7 for a couple of years, a really interesting show but it kind of burnt me out and twisted me out of shape a bit Um, and I realised I took time away after that and I thought I pretty much provided all the ideas for that and pulled a lot of the team together. I worked with a really good producer but I took all the ideas and basically gave him the show to make and I thought, no, I should be in control of that. I should run my own business. So uh, that was the moment where I just dis- determined to set up my own company and control my own projects. And, you know, as you as you do, my company started with it. Uh, the first thing I did was print up a business card and I had uh, this beautiful uh, woman that's worked with me for many years, Ursula Mello angel. Anyone listening to this who knows it will know why I'm saying that. And she was my assistant and I sat there with this business card and I said to her, Oh, I wonder what what I do next. <laughs> um, but that's <laughs> I've got what the you, cards. That's what you do. You you um you put yourself in play. You take the first step, and you see what the second step might look like. Hmm.
0: Speaking of seven, what happened to your seven show last year? You did two seasons of a new interview show. Sure. Then walked away from it. Doesn't yeah. seem to have been cancelled. The ratings don't seem to have been bad. The uh, ratings
1: were you know sufficient. No, it was just you know it, it was enough, and I I don't think. Uh, really, there was a—I think it was almost a ten-year gap between that and an off-rope, and
0: which was a very successful ABC interview show that you did. Yeah, while, and while.
1: enormous changes in in who it was possible to get. Uh, various reasons for that, um, because of uh, there's there's juggernauts like the Graham Norton show and. Um, uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel or whoever in America, the big stars don't come here anymore. Mm. But m- probably more relevantly, um, social media means people are afraid to have a candid conversation because what if one comment blows up? Mm. And so, the sorts of conversations I like to have, it was harder to get people willing to have them. And uh, so, after two years, you know, we had some great conversations and some great people, but um, I looked at the people I worked with and we said, no, I don't think this has legs." So we went to Channel 7, who were really excellent. They are given us great support and said, we think we should pull a pin. And they said, well, if that's what you think, sure.
0: Does it sadden you that the changes to the media landscape make it impossible to do a show like that?
1: N- me personally, no. Uh, and I will say there was a third reason, and it's you not you personally, you as representative of something I love, which is there is so much good conversation happening on podcasting now. I'm a big consumer of podcasts, and um, that's where a lot of conversations gravitated. It doesn't have the impact, you know, obviously this was the Everest or the 100-pound the gorilla of interviews, Oprah and Harry and Meghan. It, mm. You can never get that scale, but you can still do something really good. You can. There's
0: something though about the shared experience of 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 broadcasting that yes. I quite like. Yeah, you know, that, and obviously that you like as well because yeah. you spent your life doing it, um, yeah. both in radio and in and in television and. Uh, and when I was a kid, I loved John Stewart. I loved uh, Dave Letterman. I loved the appointment viewing. I, I, I became sort of friends with Dick Cavett when I was in New York. Really? And he was just yes. Yeah, so wow. Like, people like like. Have you have you got the
1: DVDs of his old shows? You, well, now uh, they're on YouTube, so you can see. Oh, a of, lot course of You can see a lot. How old-fashioned am I? <laughs> <laughs> Do you
0: have the VHS? Do you have the Betamax? I've got his? a
1: DVD of YouTube, <laughs> but I must watch it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, there's
0: amazing. You know, and the era when. The when a, a broadcast network could be brave enough to get Dick to give Dick Cavett ninety minutes with uh, you know you mentioned Muhammad Ali I'm sure he did Muhammad he Ali did. for he probably yeah. sixty or sixty minutes or so and just to have them sitting there smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey yeah. in prime time is something that whilst. Obviously I am a product of the new media generation and I'm grateful to be able to do a podcast and I love the fact that there are so many voices and that it's not just Walter Cronkite saying that's the way things are or that's the way it is and that's all there is. There was something intoxicating about the sense that everyone is watching this thing that we're being told is worth watching by people who know what they're doing.
1: Oh, for sure. And, you know, enough rope... Uh, for most of its six years was pulling a million viewers um, mm, each month. That's Monday a lot night. in Australia. That's a lot. You know, we've got a population of uh, 26 million, I think it is. Um, so that is a lot. And uh, there was a – it was exciting. It was exciting to know that a really good conversation – they were all good uh, – was going to reach that many people. And I hear it back um, – in fact, I heard it back just the other day through a friend. Um, and this is very gratifying – Somebody had volunteered to them that they used to watch Enough Rope with their family, and the the way those conversations were conducted has helped guide them in how they go about their conversations. So I think that's a mm. that's a really good thing, which goes back to what I was saying before to do a satire to do with the national broadcaster generally. I think it's about modelling ways of thinking and ways of deconstructing and constructing a conversation. I think that's the, the true value. It's not about a particular ratings point or certainly not about one political viewpoint or another.
0: I mean, one of the things that I try to do throughout all of my career and my interviewing, I suppose, is to have a maximally generous interpretation of what people who I disagree with are trying to articulate. Mm-hmm. That's something that I can smell through running through your work. Uh, to not score cheap points. Mm. If you're going to score a point, make it a good one.
1: (laughs) And, you know, um, and my background was in being sharp and funny and, you know, barbed and all of that. And I could certainly do that. And it was a real discipline to pull back from that. Yeah, uh, you know, I was talking to. Um, I was being interviewed by Michael Robotham at the Sydney Writers Festival, and I was intrigued. I didn't pick him up on it actually, but he referred to the interview with Pauline Hanson as amongst a series of controversial interviews. I don't think that's a controversial interview. I think that's exactly the kind of interview the ABC should be doing, uh, not to cast heat, but to cast light. Uh, I I do think that is going back to what I was saying before about the poisonous partisan divide. I think that is greatly missing um, the willingness and the discipline to sit and listen to people with whom you disagree to at least try and understand. You know, when Sarah Ferguson interviewed Steve Bannon at, on the ABC three or four years ago, and there was a furor mm. uh, amongst the staff or elements of the staff. Um, had I been running News and Current Affairs, I would have got everybody in a room and said, anyone that's got a problem with this is working at the wrong place. Our job is not to determine who is right and who is wrong for the public to hear. Whether or not you agree with this man, what he represents is a very powerful moment in our contemporary history. Trumpism, populism, uh, the, the, uh, the rise of... Uh you know, if you look at Steve Bannon, he came from uh, that Internet gamergate culture. He tapped into what Trump tra- tapped into, which is this very angry undercurrent that was in America. So he was a significant figure. And of course, he should be spoken to and of course, he should be listened to at length. And I'd like to see the ABC do more of that. That's mm. that's the ABC's job for mine.
0: I mean, the idea that your own side of politics is going to be more robust if you have no idea what people who disagree with you actually think is what's insane to me. Like, why would you not listen to Steve Bannon and thereby think that you're better equipped to withstand him?
1: Well, yeah, I think strategically that makes sense. If, if that person is your opponent or even your enemy, then the more you know about your opponent's weapons, the better. But also, one of my favourite stories... Uh, When I started Hungry Beast, I related – in fact, it became the the instruction to that young team of um, digital natives that we recruited to make a show from the ground up. And um, it came from Jack Nicholson, who was a a famous liberal Hollywood star and who I once had the joy of interviewing, by the way. And uh, he um, was being – interviewed, and he was asked, well, what are you reading right now? And he said, Anne Coulter. Now, for those who've forgotten her, she was one of the early (laughs) right-wing, flaming uh, antagonists.
0: That is the most offensive thing that you could ever say about Anne Coulter. If she ever heard you say that, that would be a dagger to the heart, (laughs) forgetting Anne
1: Coulter. Oh, I see, right. Well, anyway, so the journalist who was obviously of the liberal left was kind of shocked. Why would you be reading Anne Coulter? And Jack Nicholson said beautifully, he said, I already know what all my friends think. Tell me something I don't know. Mm. And that became the instruction to the Hungry Beast team. Tell me something I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's good. What was the interview with Jack Nicholson like?
1: Great. It was really, really good. Um, He – a couple of moments. um, I said, do you you remember the first time – okay, I'll go back one. How I prepare for an interview is for someone like that. I think you've been interviewed by a zillion people. Um, I'm going to ask you about your craft because – because my theory is to make someone in- interesting, you make them interested. So I thought, this is going to interest you. So um, I spoke a lot about his craft. And I asked him, do you remember the first time you saw yourself up on the screen? He said, absolutely. I was, I was actually, it was in a cinema. It was a B-grade movie. It was in a cinema across the road from the pool hall where I was also hustling for money. And I've, a whole lot of my friends are there and other people. And I'm with my mother. And everybody's talking through the movie. And to my horror, my mother stands up and say, will you be quiet? My son's in this film. Uh, but, you know, one of the, um, I've got it somewhere, um, probably on a VHS or a yeah, cassette tape. I'll check YouTube. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was working at Triple M at the time, and I knew this was not the stuff we did, but the interview went well, and we had a really great conversation. And I said at the end, and I'd written them, I said, would you do a couple of little promos for me? I said sure. So I've got Jack Nicholson going. Here's Andy. <laughs> wow. And when I when I'm buried, hopefully I'll be dead at the time. But when I'm buried, um, <laughs> uh, I want that plate as I go out. Yeah, that's good. That's <laughs> or as great. I come in,
0: maybe. Um, so thinking about understanding the the ideas that you don't necessarily agree with, and surrounding yourself with notions that your friends don't articulate what do you make of uh i suppose broadly the left at the moment and the criticisms of the left that it is um more censorious more closed-minded uh less open to uh, having conversations that are difficult to to hear and that might trigger some tripwires on culture war issues
1: it worries me greatly um i think uh Zealotry, wherever it is, left or right, uh, is problematic. Um, you know, in the centre, I think it's fine. I, I am trying to form a group of fundamentalist moderates that <laughs> slaughter anyone that won't be, but see both sides of the argument. Um, it, it is true, if you look at that much despised phrase, cancel culture, which is now more prominent, I guess, from the left, as has been pointed out, this was, in many ways, the left response to the right. You know, cancel culture <laughs> goes back a long way. Uh, I think one of the most prominent examples of cancel culture in this country, and still one of the most disturbing, was the way News Limited effectively drove Yasmin Abdulmajeed yes. out of the country for a, a comment she made in private on her Facebook page. Yeah. Well, not in private, but it was it was a personal comment. Um, that was as near to canceling a person in a society as I. As I've seen, and very dangerous it was.
0: And just to articulate for people who don't know that, yes, is a, a Muslim Australian mm-hmm. uh, media commentator, cultural sure. commentator, writer. I suppose. Yeah. And She wrote on Anzac Day, where the Anzac Day is sort of our remembrance day, uh, lest we forget uh, the people in Nauru and Manus Island, who Palestinians, refugees, refugees or the people yeah. who we yeah, yes. who we mistreat. And this was regarded as being in poor taste on the day when we're supposed to be remembering fallen soldiers. And she mm. was there was such a furor from the right wing.
1: Well, m- and, and also Murdoch-controlled press. That the disproportionate response in that hers was a comment on on a Facebook page. As I said, her Facebook page, which ended up. Uh, all over the front pages of newspapers, mm. and it went on for days, and and, and you it, wonder
0: why celebrities don't want to sit down for yeah. a thirty minute unguarded interview. It was anyway. very ugly,
1: so that was that was a, a, an example. So cancel culture is not new, but I find um, I find this idea of we we simply can't listen to an idea that may cause us offence. I think that way, uh, Orwellian terror lies, because. Well, that line just keeps moving and moving, doesn't it? And who gets to decide what is not appropriate to be listened to? And it may be fine for you, Josh, to say, I don't want you to talk to me about coal mining because it triggers me Um, until one day somebody says, I don't want Josh to talk to me about uh, being an extraordinary, talented alien because it triggers me. You know, who decides that line? I think there are... the the lifeblood of Western democracy is information and open discussion. Now, I think there are there are very few places where that line, I think, is correctly drawn, and, and, and Holocaust denial, I believe, is one. Um, and that has been... But that is an, an exceptional case in our public discourse, and it's viewed as such by courts and parliaments. Uh, I think anything that closes down... What is the lifeblood of Western democracy is uh, is problematic, and for me personally, it's not such a big issue. I've cancelled myself, you know. <laughs> I, I I've stepped out of the, the the media. I'm not really. I'm not on social media. It's just not my thing. But I really worry for the generation coming through. And um, uh, you know, I, I had a a friend who's much younger than me, um, who's very much at the digital generation who texted me about 14 months ago, terrified, saying, I'm about to be cancelled. And it was because of something he'd made um, when we'd worked together many years earlier. And uh, what became clear to me is that cancelled didn't just mean, oh, people are going to say bad things about me. It meant he was afraid he was going to lose his living. Because, oh, yeah. because he said, you know, a lot of the work I do it comes from publicly funded institutions, one way or another. And if I've got the wrong mark against my name, that's going to dry up. Now, uh, that I think that's a terrifying prospect for anyone. And uh, I don't think uh, I don't think it benefits people to chill conversation. Uh, I think we should be able to. I don't like seeing people deplatformed at universities. Uh, isn't the whole idea of universities to consider ideas and and to educate yourself as to how the world works and and different ways of looking at the world? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not in favour, and I know as I'm saying this, <laughs> there's a whole lot of people going, "Well, that's you know, uh, that is just that is really wrong. We can't allow X idea or Y idea. Of course, we can allow X idea or Y idea."
0: Well, they probably think that they agree with you actually. Mm. When you when you talk to people who a pro cancel culture. They never think of themselves as being that. They would take your uh what you just articulated and they'd say, "Yes, we want to sustain the lifeblood of western civilization and the lifeblood of western civilization is the arc of justice that bends towards justice or whatever it was that obama talked about and, sure. and the empowerment of minorities to no longer be shat on by a patriarchal uh, white supremacist yeah, all uh, of, you know regime all and, of which i
1: think is absolutely appropriate so
0: they would they would interpret i mean you know it, when you talk about specific things like holocaust denial uh, some so you can say holocaust denial is beyond the pale uh, another person can say that saying that Muslim immigration into Australia is incompatible with Western civilization mm. is beyond the pale. That's something that Pauline Hanson and other right-wing uh, politicians would would say. Mm. Uh, Israel Falau, the uh, famous footballer, sure. saying that you know homosexuals are, are fornicators who are going to go to hell. I mean, I'm I'm with you, but I but I'm just pointing out that you sort of have to defend them all in a way in order to to have a, a leg to stand on because people I'll will be- always say. Yes, but hate speech is excluded from... Yes, I agree with your vision, Andrew. I agree mm. with all of that. But hate speech and vilification uh, are, are not something we want to uh, allow. And then the basket of things that are considered hate speech mm. gets, keeps growing and growing and
1: growing. That's right. And look, I believe in free speech, but that doesn't mean I believe in speech free of consequence. And Israel flowers is a good case in point. Uh, he had a perfect right to say what he said. And I, I was disappointed to see that uh, Australian rugby ended up, almost been penalised for what I felt was a perfect right to defend their the interests of their business and their product, if you like, to say, your comments are causing us to lose our sponsors and therefore you've damaged our business and therefore you have uh, broken your contract with us. Mm. Um, so I, I think speech does have consequence and should have consequence. That doesn't mean speech should be stopped. Why am I making the distinction with Holocaust denial because that is uh, an undeniable event (laughs) which uh, cost about six million lives Um, and there is a a clear and present danger still as we see the rise of anti-Semitism across Europe and in other places to allowing that denial to be magnified in any way. Now, in social media, on the internet, you can find it if you want it. You can go to Stormfront or any of those. But um, in terms of allowing people, that's why David Irving wasn't allowed into this country, in terms of allowing people into this country to speak publicly about it, I think that is an appropriate thing to go, no. Mm. Uh, And I think that is, in the same way, you know, it's that old thing of um, don't cry uh, fire in a crowded cinema. Mm. If If there's a Uh, as I think there is in the case of Holocaust denial, a clear line between, and a really clear line and and the most murderous line in the history of the world uh, between those expressed thoughts and the actions that are then going to follow. Now, again, you could say, of course, um, anti-Muslim rhetoric, for example, from people like Pauline Hanson uh, provokes hate, but... uh, I, I think it's a question of scale, I'm sorry mm. to say, and I think the scale of the Holocaust was so vast and and still echoes uh, and will echo through history, I think, I mean, for all time, that it, it, it is appropriate to address that.
0: When we say that, that speech has consequences... I, that also irritates me a bit because it's often what gets used by by pro-cancel culture people to mm. say, look, I mean, you're allowed to say whatever you want, but you're not allowed to say what you want free from consequences as they string people up by the balls for using the wrong transgender pronoun or something. Sure. Uh, if they have balls in that particular case. Um, and the, the I think it, what it comes down to is who is doing the cancelling and on what basis for me mm. a lot as well. And it's the haste of the the yeah. public shaming that's happening at the moment. So like... Does the government want to make a thoughtful decision to ban a Holocaust denying historian from entering the country after due process has been given has been given to him? Yeah, I think that's probably okay because at least there's some process. Yes, I was less comfortable with Israel Philaw, the footballer, being sacked because I felt like, do we? Even though I disagree with him, obviously, I mean, I'm, I am one of the homosexual fornicators who he's talking about when he when he uh, he talks about how I'm going to hell. Do I want big, wealthy corporations, including in their contracts, what people are allowed to believe and say that they believe? I mean, from the perspective of a devoutly Christian person, mm. there are certain principles that they would be betraying the most important values that they hold mm. if they were to, to not articulate.
1: And- I agree. I, I absolutely agree that no corporation or, or entity pardon me, should say to somebody what you can and can't believe or even what you can and can't talk about. However, in this instance, um, he had made an undertaking not to damage the brand by talking about this in a public forum. Mm. And he broke that undertaking. And um, I do, you know, if you working at the ABC... Josh, understanding that it's the national broadcaster, it's paid for by the taxpayers, it's an extremely valuable and valued institution, if you decided to use your time on air to suddenly start screaming obscenities about uh, whatever, Hindus, um, that organisation would have a right to say, you've damaged us and we don't want you to work here. And I don't think that's I don't think that's about free speech. I think that's about uh, acting fairly and responsibly when you have made an undertaking uh, with the organisation with which you're working.
0: So I should cancel my new podcast vilifying Hindus is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know uh, Hindu Hellraiser, your yeah. new podcast is is. <laughs> Is definitely not one.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, yes, I think you're right. I mean, it comes down to the methodology, doesn't it? If I were to mm. sign a contract saying uh, I happen to believe in, uh, I, w- I won't even, let's let's say there's the theory of the flat earth theory, but I'm not going to articulate that on the air because that's going to damage mm. the ABC brand and then I do it, then mm. I suppose that's one thing. The concern is that having conversations like these on my podcast mm. There is a very real threat that if I just have open, unguarded conversations where in order to arrive at uh, at interesting ideas, we wander off into the brambles and kind of get poked by thorns occasionally, yeah. that in the process of doing that, I could lose my job at the ABC yes. because inadvertently you know, stepping on a landmine that we didn't even really know was there, but in four years' time, everyone understands that that landmine is not something that you're allowed to step on. So someone goes back and listens to it, and the outrage archaeologists have a field day. That's a nice nice expression,
1: outrage archaeology. I think that's a great expression, and and that's one of the things I really struggle with, in that uh, this person I was talking about who nearly got cancelled, the thing that he made... You could, you can, you could look back at it after ten years and go, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well now. But first of all, where was it coming from? It was a piece of satire. And secondly, as I said to um, somebody that was upset about it, I said, well, if you can show me, because the the inference was that he had, he was racist. If you can show me that for the last for the ten years since his behaviour supports that, I mean, our lives and our careers are a river. And if you just take a photograph of one section of the river and say, that's it, that's not the river, that's, that is a frozen moment. And I think, I think it is, um, it's, it's it's the problem with, as you said, the instant uh, condemnation that happens. People fixate on a single moment rather than the bigger picture. And you know what it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever read um, that beautiful book Wild Swans about, uh, about the cultural revolution in China and what I see happening on Twitter reminds me totally of that, which is in the cultural revolution in villages, and, and it was usually the younger generation against the older generation. So Mao's cultural revolution in China was to drive out the bourgeoisie. And um, so it would be decided somewhere in that village that uh, Mr. and Mrs. X, who um, might be run the local market, they were bourgeoisie. So they would be accused of something, bought into the public square, surrounded, um, forced to apologise for their actions, shamed, forced to apologise for their actions, often had their head shaved and then cast out. And it was a very physical – and millions – this happened to millions of people in the Cultural Revolution. And I see its equivalent happening today. And I I, I don't believe that's a healthy society.
0: Mm. Let's talk about voluntary assisted dying, um, the subject of your podcast, speaking mm-hmm. of, of podcasts. Um, what happened to your dad?
1: Uh, my dad was um, had been probably for the last seven or eight years of his life, or longer probably the last decade, very unwell. He'd had a heart attack, it had heart surgery, he had lots of stuff going on. And eventually his body really packed in and um, he went into our local hospital, which is Fine, they did all the right things, Um, but it was congestive heart failure. And uh, as another doctor described to to me many years later, it's a bit like being waterboarded. It's a pretty nasty way to go. And he was given pump full of all the drugs, but my sisters and I, we didn't talk about it for many years, but we've talked about it since, and all I can see as I speak now is him lying there and just moaning and spasms of pain and twitching and um, it was it was um, very shocking to see and you walk out of that you don't think well that was wrong you think well that's how it goes and that's a hospital and they know what they're doing and I'm sure they did the best they could um, you you're so because dying and particularly when it's uh, you've parent and, and in my case it was the first death I've been up close to because it's such a profoundly shocking thing and um, you, you find it very hard to process and you're, you're utterly disempowered in that situation so um, yeah I, watching dad die was uh, will always be with me and my sisters and um, it, was, it was not good and it could have been better I now know How? Well uh, funnily enough, um, <clears throat> I was being interviewed by 60 Minutes some years ago, Liz Hayes, and she, and she asked about my dad, and, and, and she said, what did he think about euthanasia? I said, I don't recall us talking about it at length, but I, I would imagine her supportive. She said, he was. I interviewed him on the Today Show back in 1986, and here's a tape of it. Oh, wow.
0: Um, was it a Betamax or a DVD, uh, a YouTube clip?
1: No, it was actually, it was, it was pigeons performing okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and a tiny pigeon band. That's right. No, it was it was a cave painting. Um <laughs> uh with a tick 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 underneath. Her. Um and uh yeah, dad um dad who was a very uh well-educated man who knew his own mind. Uh put it really well. He's very articulate. He said, "You know, what does euthanasia mean? It, it it's two Greek words." And which together mean good death, and it means not dying in a world of pain. And, you know, I wish that could have been extended for my father. I think if voluntary assisted dying, which is for those that don't know what it is, it's a law which enables people uh, who are terminally ill, uh, if they meet certain criteria, which is having six months or less to live, um, or 12 months if it's, if it's a neurodegenerative disease, like motor neuron disease, um, you can legally be prescribed a, a life-ending draft which you can choose to drink. And if you do uh, drink that, then you will die peacefully and quickly at a time of your choosing with the people you want around you, which is different to how my father died, which was in pain, drugged up in a hospital with us watching. Mm. Have you read
0: Atul Gawanda's book, Being Mortal*? Yeah. Uh- where which is a he's a physician and writer mm. and uh in in the States and it's a beautiful meditation yes. on how screwy our Western relationship to death is. It's not specifically about euthanasia, but about sure. the entire medicalization of the process around dying yes. in and the, the detachment that we have from the sort of gritty, organic, familial reality of the way that death has traditionally been experienced. Is do you incorporate that into your thinking about euthanasia this broader question of what we're doing when we're dying?
1: Yes, in as much as, I mean, not in that spiritual sense, although it does remind me what somebody said to me a couple of years back, which is in Victorian times um, they talked about death all the time and never about sex, and now it's the other way around. (laughs) Um, In as much as, and I I know this to be true from so many people who I have uh, got to know who've gone through this process, uh, that and uh, look, it's one of the things the Catholic Church, which attempts to own dying, who are the who are the significant opponents of assisted dying. They paint this picture that the right way to die is a natural death, surrounded by Christian love and and what they refer to as supernatural warmth, which is a hell of an expression, and uh, or maybe hell is in the right word. Um, <laughs> and that of and that is, uh, I remember Geraldine Doug, um, who's. Fairly religious, and she used to. I went on compass, and she talked to me about, you know, do you think there's, there are certain rites around dying? I said, absolutely, there are, and some of them, you know, whatever gets you through the night, as John Lennon used to say. Mm. I think those that Christian view of dying—that's that—it's a time of spiritual growth—is very important to those people. What I've seen with voluntary assisted dying is that there's no less of that. Uh, that those last moments, those farewells the ability to be truly in that moment with the person you love uh, is very, very powerful. And and people go to it their own way. Um, one man in Victoria who uh, chose voluntary assisted dying did something which perhaps you or I would find counterintuitive. He didn't want his family there when he died. And he said... I don't want their love holding me back. Mm. It's such a hard thing to do. It's so hard to do. And and in this podcast, um, there's one episode where I interview three people who each have the medication. And one of them, uh, his name is Peter Jones. And he was a a musician, a professional musician, very dry sense of humour. And when I was talking to him, I was keenly aware he'd set the date and it was about 500 hours hence from when we were going to talk. It was only a couple of weeks. and
0: I'm glad you did the maths there because I was thinking 500 divided by 24. I wasn't <laughs> going to listen to the next 30 seconds of no. <laughs> things you were going to say.
1: Um, and in the course of our conversation, I only realized afterwards that he there was something that he really needed to talk about. And he asked me a question. And this is burnt into my soul. Um, he said he had one Daughter, who is the love of his life, and he said, "I, I read about a sister dying and how it's described as this kind of kumbaya moment, and it's all very lovely." And he said, "But I, I'm not so sure. I think it's, I think it's something darker than that." And how? And he basically said, "How am I going to say goodbye to my daughter? Because she's, I love her more than anything, and she's going to lose me. I'm going to lose her." And we had to do it by Zoom, and I just wanted to reach through the screen and hug him because I, I got the pain. I got the pain and, uh, um, you know, it was many years after dad died that this thought suddenly came into my head. I thought, gee, that was hard for us. Well, what was it like for him to mm-hmm. know, as we all must, to know that you are going to say goodbye to everything you know and everything you love? And I remember walking out of uh, the hospital when dad died. It was a perfect Blue Mountain's Autumn Day, the kind of day he and I live for. I remember distinctly thinking, like the words, (laughs) I spoke them to myself. I I looked at this blue sky and I thought, you don't get this anymore. You don't get the sky. You don't get the sun. You don't get the grass. You don't get to play anymore. And um, so to go back to this, uh, to Peter Jones, um, I think everybody... Reaches the moment, particularly when you know when the moment is going to be, in their own way. And for some, it's deeply spiritual. And for others, it's I don't want the family there because I don't want their love holding me back. It's hard.
0: So part of the pushback to voluntary and so the, just to clarify for people the first season of your podcast Better Off Dead was um, about five years ago and you mm. were looking at some of the jurisdictions where these laws have been introduced like the Netherlands and Belgium and so on and then the new season which is uh, which is just being released now is about Victoria's experience which is a state in Australia that has, has legalised voluntary assisted dying and I mean part of the criticism of this is the slippery slope sort mm. of argument about what about these edge cases you just said when the person knows that it's their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad's starting to get dementia. Uh, I, ha- ha- His sister is a doctor. You know, I'd be lying if I didn't sometimes think about his mother uh, who ended up in a almost a vegetative state, just wracked by uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and schizophrenia. Mm. And I suppose our conversations at the time were... Long before he knew that he was going to end up with dementia, he was saying, "That's not something that I want to yeah. end up living like. That's not a life that I think is worth living anymore." Now, he's not going to be in a position to make that decision at no. some point. By the time he gets to that state, he's no longer he would no longer be eligible under any any realistic regime. And yep. so, the critics of these laws say. Well, if not, why not? And if so, then you're opening the gate to people who aren't really informed about what they're doing mm. to take their own lives, and then you're normalizing suicide.
1: Yeah. Well, God, there's many things there. First of all, I'll, I just want to address the I, this expression, slippery slope. It is used in the same way as the expression fake news is used. It's, it's like a flamethrower, <laughs> uh, it's like it's, it, it's, and it's essentially code for we don't want this to happen anywhere ever. You know, somebody who I've met in my travels in this, who I really liked is, is the Jesuit priest Frank Brennan, who's a very eminent thinker in this country. And, and we were on a panel together and he sent me some of his writing afterwards about slippery slope and and this idea that, you know, once you start the law here, then it will inevitably expand. Um, by the way, the last 20 years uh, has shown very little of that, but I'll I'll come to that. And I remember thinking, you know, Frank has been such an admirable advocate for refugees. I remember thinking, I wonder how Frank would react if, if somebody said to him, well, Frank, you know, if you let in Vietnamese, then one day you're going to have to let in Fijians. And I don't know if we want Fijians. He would have gone, but that, the principle of this is we help people. Um, the principle of assisted dying is you're trying to help people who medical science can't help. So to go back to the question of Alzheimer's, which is the number one, and dementia, the number one thing that's raised with me, and as you rightly pointed out, no law in Australia and and few laws around the world um, will encompass Alzheimer's. And there is a really core reason for that, which is At the very centre of these laws is you have to prove that this is your wish and that you are mentally competent, not just when you first ask for it, but all the way through the assessment process, which is quite uh, testing, as it should be. Um, There is another reason, which is if somebody... And, you know, there's a lot of debate about this overseas. Well, if somebody with dementia puts it in an advanced care directive that when I reach X point, then I can be uh, euthanised. Um, that mechanism may well work, but you're still asking somebody to act on that who can't look that person in the eye regardless of that advanced care directive and know 100% that that's what they want. Mm. And I think that that's very difficult for that doctor who's in that position. So when I was in the Netherlands, one of the more fascinating conversations I had, they have a thing called... They've got the longest conversation about... uh, euthanasia and end of life of any country in the world. And they've developed uh, a place called the Life Ending Clinic, which deals with what you call fringe cases, what they call specialised cases. And the man that ran it is called Stephen Pleiter. And um, we were talking about Alzheimer's cases. And concurrent to this, I interviewed a family whose mum had Alzheimer's and had gone through the assessment process and been legally had her life ended in, in the Netherlands. And they, the daughter described how the mum had been put through the hoops, like all the way through. Do you know what this is you're asking for? Do you know that this is what you want? And she said, even even right to the night before, I was unsure. I was unsure. How does my mum really know? And then I overheard the nurse say to her on the night before, you have a choice, you can drink a draught or you can be um, injected. And she said to the mother, what would what would you prefer? And the mother said, I will drink. I always know what it is I want to do. And the daughter heard this and said, yeah, my mother does know. So cut back to the, the man who runs the life-ending clinic. And he talked about how um, with dementia, you've got to make a choice. And the expression he used was you have to choose to leave the ball before midnight. So mm-hmm. in other words... You still have to be able to show that this is your competent wish. So in effect, you have to make a choice to end your life before the dementia takes such hold that you can no longer express your wish, Um, which means you won't live the full extent of your natural life. Or if you don't choose to leave the ball before midnight, then you'll go into that grey space, which I've witnessed too, and um, it's, it's a terrible thing. People that talk about the slippery slope often raise this as, you know, this is where we're going to go. I don't know what the answer to it is, but what I do know is that it is in our society and in most societies one of the most pressing medical issues. The prevalence of Alzheimer's Alzheimer's and dementia, I think it's it's one of I think it's the second biggest killer of over eighties in Australia. It is a huge problem and many, many families are grappling with it. And if as a society, through the parliamentary process, which the history of the assisted dying debate in Australia shows us is extreme and difficult. But if as a society we devise and approve and our parliaments agree to a system whereby people with Alzheimer's can be assisted to die, then that is what our society wants. That is not a slippery slope. That is Western parliamentary democracy, representative democracy, working as it should.
0: When we were just launching Post Live, the, net, the the streaming television network that I worked on in New York, uh, one of my original pitches was to do a recurring segment called Slippery Slope Schmippery Schmope. <laughs> I we, see we, what you're doing. Are you,
1: <laughs> what was that? An extraordinary talent? What was your visa <laughs> saying?
0: Extraordinary talent, mm, Andrew. Extraordinary mm, talent.
1: Did, did you juggle? i uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's all I had left. Mr. Denton, all I had left. Uh but yes, unfortunately that, that particular gem didn't get up. But I thought that there would be an endless reservoir of weekly uh de- debunkings of slippery slope claims that people are making about various things. Well, I <laughs> still so, look it never you never got the schmippery schmoke.
1: I mean I've heard so many in the assisted dining space and 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 it invariably gets to. And it probably will again in the debate's about to happen. Somebody invariably says but look at Nazi Germany. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the outstanding slippery slope-ism I've heard was actually in the same-sex marriage debate. You'll remember this, that people were going to end up marrying bridges and yes, buildings. Yes, and ducks. And ducks, yeah. Bill yeah.
0: O'Reilly said, what's next? You're going to marry a duck?
1: Oh, that's an interesting
0: thought. I was actually... Yeah, no, I even interviewed... Who was it? Jeremy Irons right. on Half Post Live. Yeah, And I asked him about that because the gay marriage uh, was just a, was imminent in the UK. Yes. And he said... Could a father not marry his son? And I said... Well, why? Why would he? Since you get around death duties, you see, so if you inherit uh, your estate, then you uh, you could marry your you could marry your son and get around the death duties because then you're not inheriting it; you're giving it to your
1: spouse. you see. Was he proposing this,
0: or was he? <laughs> oh, it's funny. So Colbert subsequently picked up my interview with Jeremy Irons and yes. played it and uh, and showed a shot of Jeremy Irons with his son, right. Who I'll just. Pretend his name is William. I don't remember, but yes. you know, Colbert then saying, "You've just made William a very happy man." <laughs> oh, dear. As if Jeremy is, and Jeremy. we've his gone son into it. The, gonna-
1: <laughs> this conversation must be cancelled right this now. This will be cancelled, yes,
0: or we will. Um, so, I mean, let's just play then in the edge, in the in the in the fringe there for a moment. What did you call it? Special?
1: Uh, this was the uh, conditions uh,
0: like the the cases that are unusual. Right. Or yeah, rare. that's right. Um, In October, I'm moderating a series of events with Peter Singer, who is doing a Sydney and a Melbourne and a Brisbane, and I'll be in conversation with him. And he is well known for pushing the envelope on these kinds of questions and saying, look, there's no if If abortion is okay, there's no real reason why a severely handicapped two month old child who has no prospect for a flourishing mm. life whatsoever and is going to be living in pain for you know for a short abbreviated life, there are some conditions mm. where you know there's no prospect of them living more than ten years, fifteen years uh, in agony that that it should be legal to kill that that child. Do you play in
1: those waters? No, not so much. Uh, I'm certainly aware of those waters. In fact, I watched Peter Singer in a debate with um, Arch- Archbishop Anthony Fisher at Sydney Town Hall some years ago and, and in fact, a very um, emotional uh, representative of the disability communities with a particular form of spina bifida stood up and said, I'm the sort of person you'd like to see dead, which I don't think is what Peter's saying. But, no, I play in very centrist waters and, <laughs> and I do that for a very specific reason – on my side of the argument, there are many people well to the left of me who think that assisted dying laws should be uh, open to more people, uh, and there are powerful arguments for that, I might add. But um, when I did that first podcast series, so I spent almost a year traveling around talking to, I got the opportunity to speak to everyone, including uh, fierce opponents, and what I uh, realized as I did my research is that the reason these laws hadn't passed in Australia is that um the political argument was not being well run and that often people were trying to uh, argue for something which wasn't ever going to get through an Australian parliament. Right. Each, you know, it's often opponents of these laws will point to, well, look what's happening in Canada and look what's happening in Belgium. It's, it's like, no, that's not how it works. You know, Australia and America both have guns, but we have completely different approaches to how we do it. Each country makes its laws according to its culture and its traditions and its history. And uh, what I've discovered, because I've spent a lot of time, and it's often been fascinating talking with politicians over the last five years, from all parties, from all points of view on this, is that our parliaments in this issue are conservative, and more than that, almost without exception, politicians, because these are conscience votes, so that you get to actually see their brains and hearts at work, when they stand up and talk about it, almost without exception, they'll say this is the most significant and the most difficult thing I will ever be asked to address in my career. Um, So I think my focus and the group I've set up, which is Go Gentle Australia, to advocate for this law reform, is to make sure there is law reform. And, uh, you know, I've had some pretty willing arguments with some of the people on my side that would like us to be pushing for something wider or bigger or greater. And I say, look... I'm arguing for 80% of something rather than 100% of nothing. And I have seen this borne out in Victoria, which the law is conservative, and the conservative nature of the law has created some problems. But here's what I've seen. What, I'd, what was invisible five years earlier, except for a, very, uh, a couple of very principled people, I've seen doctors, senior doctors, I've seen senior people in palliative care, stepping forward, and talking about things that were verboten to talk about three or four years ago, talking about if we're saying that what we provide is patient-centred care and then we're turning around and saying to patients, sure, you can, if you're dying, you can refuse all treatment and you can you know, spend two weeks uh, letting your disease take its course and we'll look after you. If we're saying that's OK, but you can't make that same choice and die quickly and painfully, that's not providing patient-centred care. That's us saying what we think you're allowed to do. And so whatever the limitations or the, the uh, problems thrown up by Victoria's law, it has changed the conversation in Australia about what is medicine, what is patient-centred care um, and what is the problem that needs to be addressed.
0: Let's wrap up. When you think about the future and younger people who are coming up these days and trying to make it, not just in the creative arts but in any industry are you are you bullish about Australia
1: uh, I think Australia is still a, a pretty blessed place to be in many ways but I think um, I think there are significant generational issues in terms of uh, distribution of wealth distribution of opportunity you know when I was growing up it was conceivable that you would work and Uh, Be able to put a more get a mortgage and buy a place and and establish yourself. I'm trying to buy a house, so thanks for reminding me of uh, of that. My my first house, yeah. You know, if you really were an extraordinary talent, you probably would have one by now, but anyway, I'm
0: not not not. (laughs) uh, Schmippery Schmope was a great idea, I can't believe it never went anywhere.
1: He's juggling as he says this, you can't see it, but he is. Um, so in, in many ways, Australia is blessed, but I think, uh, I think anyone that there is an existential question hovering over us all and particularly the generations coming through, which is the health of the planet. And that uh, that overrides everything. You know, I am in that camp that absolutely believes that the intensity of the bushfires that we saw uh, 18 months ago was not one of those things. It was not something that's been happening in Australia for 100 years. It was not exploding cow manure... Um, Did someone say that, did they? I think Barnaby Joyce is one of the people prosecuting that. Maybe Michael McCormack as well. Mm. Uh, He's a
0: climate scientist, right, Barnaby Joyce? Uh, Well, I'm not
1: a climate scientist. Neither is Barnaby Joyce. (laughs) However, if you look at what the modelling was showing us many years earlier, the intensity of the climate events that we're seeing in Australia and around the world is exactly what they modelled. And... uh, yeah, that that makes me anxious for future generations. I have a son who's 27, and uh, one of my passions in life is Antarctica. I've been there multiple times. And if you look at what is happening to the ice shelf there, the Larson B Ice Shelf, if you look at the size of the uh, ice breaking off, um, it's uh, an iceberg the size of Jamaica broke off not so long ago. These things are not normal. These things are not just part of the historical cycle in recorded history.
0: Although that is one of those analogies that makes no sense because I have no idea how big Jamaica is.
1: But sure. I take your point. It's probably large. It's bigger than you and big- it's smaller <laughs> than the planet there. So just work it out from there. Jamaica is huge. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's it,
0: like when I hear people say, you know, the, a nice chunk the size of Delaware yes. has just... I'm like, how, how, Who's what's Delaware? I don't know. Is Delaware, <laughs> is Delaware big? It's Okay. Yeah. But well, yes, it
1: Okay. Imagine all of the Sydney metropolitan area as a giant piece of ice, mm. and we're talking uh, you know a hundred feet high, multiplied in size by eight or nine times at least. Right. That's an enormous amount of that's ice. That's big. Yeah, and that's that's ice that shouldn't be floating north. Right. That's that's kind of the point. Uh, the the Antarctic ice cap. It's not just about ice breaking off and raising water levels it actually regulates a lot of our climate, the planet's climate, ocean currents. Um, uh, what happens in terms of... And I'm not a climate scientist, so forgive me, I'm not going to give a very technical description here, but what happens in terms of uh, our weather? It's it's a very... You know, I was speaking to a research scientist who'd done ice core drilling in Antarctica, and he said from that we're able to get a very accurate picture of exactly what the rainfall had been in Western Australia for centuries. And what we could see from that is that the rainfall patterns have completely changed and that the rain that used to fall on the southwest of Western Australia now falls in the Southern Ocean. Um, so uh, I get very frustrated when I hear people <laughs> sitting in studios a bit like this um, saying, talking about climate change and saying it's, it's, it's a beat-up, it's alarmism. And I think wow, you know, having had the good fortune to talk with ice core scientists and ornithologists and biologists and people who spend their entire life just studying krill and those ecosystems, this is what they do for a living. And many of them live in these places. Um, When you hear them say that everything we're seeing shows that this is uh, falling apart, we should be paying attention to that. So that's my long-winded way of saying... Uh, we're still a great country, but we're perhaps not living in a great time and a great planet.
0: You've just made me want to avail myself of voluntary assisted dying right now, but uh, well, you, uh, you're, not, you're not eligible. <laughs> it's, it's not that voluntary. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. It's wonderful to talk to you. Lovely to meet uh, at last properly.
1: Uh, the podcast is better off dead.
0: Available. We're all good podcasts, and probably some bad
1: podcasts. Especially with oh, a bad uh, podcast. Very good. Can I just say very quickly, yes. when I did the first series, uh, mostly got you know lovely responses, but somebody on uh, Apple where they review them wrote, this, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. And he said, the guy can't even say podcast. He says podcast. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? You're right. I do say podcast. So I say to Jen, my wife now, I am one of Australia's most prominent podcasters. Podcasters. Prominent. Prominent podcasters. Prominent and you're a personality as well. So on your customs
0: form, you should write podcast and you should spell it P-O-apostrophe cast.
1: P-O-G-C-A-S. Podcast. A podcast. Excellent. Thank you for being on my podcast. Thank you, Josh. And uh, you can put the balls down now.